a joy to be with you all uh, this morning. Um, as was mentioned, uh, my name is Brock Smith. Um, I'm here alone uh, this weekend. I have a wife, Kelly, and we have three children. Uh, our youngest is nine months old right now, so it's kind of hard to travel. And so uh, my wife spoke at a ladies' conference yesterday, and so she's not here with me this time. But we thank you for the invitation to be able to speak here. Uh, I hope to be able to talk about some aspects of Japan later on, but this morning, of course, our focus is the Word of God. But I just wanted to, wanted to thank you once again for the, the, the honor to be here with you this morning. I don't know if you know of the filmmaker. I'm sure you've heard of him. I've never seen any of his, of his movies. He's a Jewish filmmaker, Woody Allen. He's pretty old now, I think. But he's a Jewish filmmaker. And he said this once. If it turns out that there is a God, the worst that you can say about him is that basically he's an underachiever. Uh, Woody Allen is a professed atheist. He has quite a dry humor. Um... But it always amazes me when I see a man like Woody Allen, who is by heritage of the people of Israel, right? The, the people who uh, recorded the very oracles of God for us Gentiles. I don't know if there's any Jewish brothers here with us this morning or sisters, but I, I would say most of us are Gentiles, right? Probably. And yet this idea that God is an underachiever, that God, He just doesn't fit our idea of who God should be. This is very prevalent, uh, very common in our culture today, is it not? We have a very atheistic culture. Even here in America, we have a very evolutionized culture. Your children are being, if they're in the public school system, taught these things from day to day. There is no God. God is not important. If there was a God, why doesn't He act like we expect Him to? Why isn't he like what I think he should be like? Woody Allen also said this, To you I'm an atheist, speaking to the public. To you I'm an atheist. To God, I'm the loyal opposition. For us as believers, it really, at least for me as a believer, it really gets my goad when I hear something like that. But I have to realize Apart from God's grace, I would be in the same boat, right? There's a blindness, an overwhelming blindness on the people of this world. Well, I use this as an introduction this morning. Today we're looking at Luke chapter 23. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 23. And I've been given a big portion of Scripture to cover. I'm not going to cover it all. There's too much in there. I would be talking for hours and you would leave. But uh, I want to be as brief as I can this morning. Uh, But I want to read the passage at least so that we have the context in mind. So Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 56. Let me just read it. I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard Bible. Please follow along in your own uh, Bible with me. When they came to the place called the Skull, 
There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had accompanied accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. Verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked, For the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. As I said just moments ago, this is a very uh, uh, big passage of Scripture to cover. I mean, there's so much we could focus on this morning. But what we have here is really the key moment of human history, is it not? This is the most vital or one of the most vital pieces of Scripture that we could study What I would like to draw our attention this morning is the three crosses of Calvary. That is our subject this morning. The three crosses 
of Calvary. Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. On that day, 2,000 years ago, there were three crosses. And today we will study those three crosses, which once stood there, and we'll discover um, how each reveals truths concerning salvation, sin, and death. Our first point this morning is that one of the crosses was a cross of rejection. A cross of rejection. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go back just a little bit in the timeline here. What had happened moments earlier before Pilate uh, sentenced Jesus? Well, Pilate, if you remember, he wanted to free someone. It was part of their tradition during the festival. I will release to you someone of your choosing. Who do you want? People of Israel, do you want Jesus of Nazareth? Or the rebel, Barabbas. We don't know much about Barabbas, do we? All we know is that he was, he was almost uh, what we would call a terrorist of that day. Maybe he was um, trying to rebel against Roman rule. Maybe he was trying to bring about the Messianic age. Maybe he considered himself Messiah. There were lots of men like that at this time professing to be the king of the Jews. All we know is that he was spared, wasn't he? In fact, the cross Jesus Christ bore was meant for Barabbas. You can literally say Jesus became his substitute that day, right? We don't know much about Barabbas. And these two who were crucified... Next to the Lord Jesus, we don't know much about them. They're called criminals or thieves in Scripture. Now, this is just a speculation of my own, and it may or may not be true. But it could be that these two men were confederates of Barabbas. We don't know. It could be, but it could not be, but we can't rule it out. Maybe they were criminals, rebels like him. Or maybe they were just basic thieves or, or criminals who had done crime that deserved the death penalty. Nevertheless, our Lord is there crucified in between those who deserve death. The first one, it says in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him. Now, in this whole section of Scripture, we have several people hurling abuse at the Lord Jesus. We have the rulers. We have the people watching. We have the Roman soldiers mocking him. Uh, Everyone is against him. And this thief joins in. This criminal joins in. He abuses him. It's interesting. The Greek word there is where we get the word blasphemy from. It literally says he blasphemed Christ. So it wasn't just a mockery of who Christ was. It was an outright rejection of who 
Christ was. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's what we've heard about the Christ. He's supposed to save us. Blasphemy. Well, this type of... Uh, I, at the beginning of the message, I quoted uh, Woody Allen. That type of arrogance is nothing new, is it not? The atheism we see in our day-to-day, the rejection of Christ and Christianity that we see in our world, it's nothing new. Modern day atheism is nothing new. Christ rejectors are in fact God rejectors. If you reject Christ, you're rejecting actually God. David says this in uh, Psalm 14, something we're, a passage we're familiar with. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. And Paul quotes this psalm and others, parts of it in Romans. It says this in Psalm 36 as well. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And that's what we hear later on from the other man. Don't you fear God? No, this man didn't. He did not fear God. Being even a Jew, raised in the synagogue, hearing the scriptures, hearing all about the God of Israel, how this God had saved them from the land of slavery, Egypt, and had brought them in into the good land, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And yet there was no fear of this God. And he mocks and blasphemes the very one who is there hanging and who had moments earlier said this, Father, oh Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Again, atheism is nothing new. Christ rejectors are, are nothing new. I want to share with you a few quotes of, of the last words of, of people who died as atheists. Joseph Stalin. Many of you have heard of him, right? The Russian ruler who murdered thousands and thousands of Christians during his reign. As was related by his daughter, Svetlana is her name. She said this about him on his deathbed. He suddenly sat up, groaned, shook his fist at the ceiling as if he could see beyond it, then fell back and died. Julian, uh, Sir Julian Huxley, he was an English atheist, evolutionist, bio- biologist. He was a staunch atheist, actually. Said this on his deathbed, it's recorded. So it's true, after all. So it is, it is true, after all. 
Julian the, the Apostate, he was called by the early Roman church. He was a Roman emperor, but he hated Christians. He wasn't one of the emperors who uh, was a Christian of, of that era. In AD 363, he was battling the Persians, and he was mortally wounded in the battle. And he died on the battlefield, and as he was dying, he picked up some of his own blood, which was coming out of his body. He mingled it with the dirt, and he flung it skyward, and he said this, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. They knew in their heart God was true. They knew in their heart that Christ was indeed who he said he was, and yet... This is the truth this morning, friends. This is what we can glean from this. The cross of rejection, what is that? That is those who at the end of it all, they are dead in sin. They are dead in sin. We all were. But they die in their sin. They go to the very edge of the grave. And even in all the darkness... And in all that they look back on their life and think about, they realize... Yes, it's all true after all. But I can't receive it. I will, as Woody Allen says, be the loyal opposition to the day I die. That's the heart of it. Christ says this in John 8, 24. Let me turn there. And you can as well if you'd like, but you don't have to. John 8:24 Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am my my version says he in italics but he isn't there it just says the lord said unless you believe that I am unless you believe I am Yahweh the living god you will die in your sins There are some in this world, there's many here represented at Calvary. But in the end, there is one group of people on one side, the Christ rejectors. They are dead in sin, and they die in sin, and they go to their grave, they go into eternity, they go into the fires of hell, rejecting the one who died for them. May that not be any of us this morning. If you are here today and your whole life you've been resisting, God is giving you one more chance. To stop resisting, to embrace his love and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, what is the second cross that stood on Calvary that day? Well, the second cross is, of course, the cross of our Lord, the cross of redemption. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. There they crucified him. Christ died for our sins. Amen? Amen. Christ died for our sins. This is the core doctrine of the gospel. Without this, we have nothing. We have no hope. 
We are without God in a dying and dead world. This is the central theme along with the resurrection. I can't exclude that. But today we're focusing on just the cross. This is the central theme of the scriptures. This is what everything was pointing to. This was the pendulum point of human history. Man had fallen away. And God is going to bring it back now through His Son Christ, the Holy One of Israel. There's many doctrines um, that we can draw out of what Christ did for us on the cross. And these terms you've heard. Propitiation. That's, that's God word. Christ stands in the gap. We, we looked at that this morning. He stands in the breach. He says, no, let me take it instead, Father. I want to take the wrath for them. I love them so much. And He stands in the gap and He absorbs it fully like a sponge so that none of it comes upon us. There's substitution, which teaches that Christ literally became our substitute, like we mentioned earlier. He was Barabbas's, in a literal sense, substitute. That was Barabbas's cross. Well, it wasn't just Barabbas's cross. It was my cross. It was your cross. Do you believe that? That you should have been on that cross. There's forgiveness of sin, pardon from our sins, being released from sin. But what I want to focus on just briefly is the concept of redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? We kind of looked at that again this morning about Israel and when the Hebrews were in Egypt, they were slaves, literal slaves in Egypt, right? The Egyptian rulers and the taskmasters made them slaves. We saw that video just moments ago about our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. They are like slaves under the authority of their Muslim rulers. Made to do the dirty work. Made to do the worst kind of work. And we looked at that this morning that God heard the groaning of His people. And he said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to change things. I'm going to redeem you. And the idea of redemption for us when we look at the cross, and it's pictured by the Passover feast, the lamb slain and the blood applied. Redemption is sinward. In other words, it's like this, brothers and sisters. All of us were slaves in Egypt in a spiritual sense. We were bound to sin. We were in the slave market of sin. We couldn't get out. We were bound hand and foot. Satan had authority over us to control us through sin. We had no freedom. Like our brother said this morning, we were on the wheel and we couldn't get out. Like a rat stuck on the wheel. Sin binding us. The law condemning us, showing us our sins, showing us that we were doomed without divine intervention. And the word here, not here, but the word, one of the words for redemption, Paul 
Uh, if you would turn quickly to First uh, Timothy chapter two. He says this, verse 3 in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. And that's talking about the previous verses, praying for all those in our world, praying for kings and those in authority. Why? Verse 4, For he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom for all. That Greek word ransom there is apolitrosis. And it means, literally it means to release on payment of ransom. Uh, I don't recommend the film, but it just came to mind. There was a, f- a movie years ago called Ransom, uh, starring Mel Gibson. And he has to, his son is captured, and he's made to uh, give up money to try to get this son released. Actually, it's a remake of a Japanese film that was made in the 1960s called uh, High and Low. There's this idea that we're slaves, we're bound in our sin, sin has all rule and control over us, Satan is using sin to dominate us, and Christ comes at the right time. The testimony, as it says in 2 Timothy, the testimony given at the proper time, he gave himself as a ransom, a release, a payment of release. And notice this, it says for all, why? God's creator of all. He's he's the creator of Woody Allen. And he's the creator of you. And he has given a mediator for all. Christ is that mediator for Woody Allen and for you. And Christ, who died as a ransom, well, he did it for all. No one is excluded. Every person could come to a saving knowledge. For that's what Paul says here. Who desires all men. To be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But he's not going to force you. He's not going to force Woody Allen. Despite his loving kindnesses and his grace, he's not going to force, force you. Um, there's a famous, well it's not famous, maybe it's famous, I don't know. Years ago, I heard this song. It's by a a Christian rapper. I don't know how Christian rap is viewed in this congregation. Uh, If that's something okay to talk about, I don't know, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Because that's how I prepared. The artist, his name is Shai Lin. He's a very... uh, I, I do recommend, whether you like rap music or not, it's very clean, of course, and his, some of the way he phrases things are so uh, deep and wonderful to listen to. A few years back, he made an album called The Atonement. And 
he, he has a song on there called The Cross. It's basically this passage of scripture that we're looking at. And I want to read for you. For you. I'm not going to rap. <laughs> Thank God, right? There's some things boys from Kansas should not do. And that's one of them. But I'm going to read it. And just listen to these lyrics. The title of the song is The Cross. And I think this illustrates better than I could say it in words what the cross of redemption accomplished. There's something you got to see. Journey with me. It's approximately 30 AD. In the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, but on the outside there's screams and loud cries. Through faith, this scene can be seen without eyes. The mean shout lies and seem to sound wise. As we inch through the crowd, we need to be cautious. A Roman execution, men on three crosses. But all of the focus is on the one in the center. The gate closes behind you. No one can enter. The sight you behold is so odd, you're stunned. The man hanging on the cross is God the Son. Twelve noon, it's pitch black because the sun shines lacking. Your minds can't fathom this divine transaction. As slowly the sound becomes mostly drowned, you realize that you're standing on holy ground. Then he goes into uh, the refrain and chorus. So forever will I tell. In three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. So forever will I tell. In three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. It's where we see your holiness at the cross. We see that you're controlling this at the cross. We see how you feel about sin at the cross. Your unfathomable love for men at the cross. It's where we see your sovereignty at the cross. We see our idolatry at the cross. We know that there's a judgment day from the cross. May we never take our eyes away from the cross. Second verse, and we'll end with this. We're now in the realm of the sublime and profound. With God at the helm, it's about to go down. The Father's wrath, precise, will blast and slice the priceless Master Christ as a sacrifice. Willingly, He's under the curse to be treated as if the Son was the worst scum of the earth. The scene is the craziest. Jesus being treated as if he is the shadiest atheist. How is it that the Messiah is in the fiery pit as if he was a wicked liar with twisted desires? The one who's sinless and just, punished as if he was promiscuous and mischievous with vicious lust. The source of all godly pleasure, tormented as if he was a foul investor or child molester. How could he be bruised? Like he was a goody two-shoes who doesn't think that she needs the good news. He's perfect in love and wisdom, but he's suffering as if he constructed the corrupt justice system. We should mourn at the backdrop. Jesus torn like he's on the corner with crack rock, with porn on his laptop. What is this, kid? His gifts are infinite, but he's hit with licks for religious hypocrites. He's the light, but being treated like he's the seedy type who likes to beat his wife. He's treated like a rapist, 
treated like a slanderer, treated like a racist, or maybe a philanderer. Jesus being penalized like he had sin inside, filled with inner pride while committing genocide. I could write for a billion years and still can't name all of the sins placed on the lamb slain. But know this, the main thing the cross demonstrated, the glory and the holiness of God vindicated. No one knew. No one knew what was going on. At that moment, in the darkness, the transaction that was taking place between God the Father and God the Son. It's unfathomable. We can't even imagine it. As our brother said this morning, he was hung between heaven and earth. And all of that, the burden of sin, laid upon him. It would have crushed and destroyed creation. And yet he bore it all. He bore it all. And what we get from this, the first man died in his sin, but Christ died for sin. He died for sin. To release us, to set us free. We're no longer trapped in that slave market of sin, friends. The bonds have been broken. And that leads us to our last point this morning. The third and final cross. This is the cross of reception. We saw the first, the cross of rejection. Then Christ's cross, one of redemption. And now the other cross. The cross of reception. Well, whose cross is this? Well, it's the other criminal. The one thief in verse 39 says, Blaspheming, are you not the Christ? Save yourself in us. Verse 40, but the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So we see there three, we see three things about this man. The first thing is this. We see his character. What was his character like? He feared God by saying to the other man, don't you fear God? You you don't fear God. You're here dying on the cross. A cross that he also, a similar type of death. I'm dying too. And you don't even fear God. You go to the extreme of joining in everyone else to blaspheme this one that they are themselves also mocking and blaspheming. So we see his character was different. Where did this happen? When did it happen? Where did the change come from? We don't know, right? But something changed. Something changed to where that he began to fear God. Maybe it was the close approaching death. The suffering. The agony that he was experiencing on the cross. Whatever it was, he feared God. And then he says... In verse 41, we see a second aspect of him. We see his conclusion. His character was, he feared God, but his conclusion is this. And we are, and we indeed are suffering justly. I know I'm a criminal. I know I did wrong. 
And I know, and I knew before that, that if I did whatever I did, the penalty for it was death. That was the law of the land. That was the law of the Romans. I knew it, and yet I did it. I'm, I'm suffering justly. We are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But, this man has done nothing wrong. That was his conclusion. How did he know that Jesus had done nothing wrong? How did he know? We have very little information about these individuals. We can only assume Jesus had been ministering for three years in, in the land. Maybe he, he had heard messages. Maybe he, he had, the word had spread. We don't know exactly. But, and yet, he believed that Jesus was innocent. And finally, we see his confession in the next verse. Verse 42. That's all he says to his confederate. And now he turns to Jesus. Can you picture it? Can you picture the Lord's suffering there? He is very soon going to be bearing all the sin on earth. He's already suffering physically. I mean, most people wouldn't even survive, sometimes scourging. And he was scourged. He could hardly carry his cross to Calvary. And here he is now nailed, bleeding profusely. And with all of that, being scorned by everyone. And being hated by everyone. And this is our Lord, right? He takes the time to have a conversation with this man. He turns to him and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's all he said. That was his confession. We don't know what he knew. What was his theology? What did he believe? Did he know that Christ was dying for his sin? Maybe he had heard growing up in the synagogue the promises of, of the Messiah that he would be cut off for the people. We don't know. And yet, look at this faith. Everyone there is against Jesus. He is the only one. He is the only one. Even Jesus' disciples aren't present there. All we know later on is that John comes with his mother Mary. Correct? Peter has denied him and ran away. The other disciples have scattered. So his trusted group is not even there to support him. The whole, the whole society has turned against him. And there is one man who somehow sees through it all. And he reckons... This thing, whether it's because he looked at the sign that says this is king of the Jews and believed it, or whether it was something else, he says, Lord, remember me. I know you're going to come in your kingdom. In spite of this situation, at this moment, we are all dying. Us three, you will come in your kingdom. And when you do, don't forget me. 
Don't forget that I stood with you. Don't forget that I vindicated you and that I believed you. And the Lord honored that. You know, it's very interesting in the New Testament or in the Gospels, we only have three occasions when God the Father spoke audibly. And in fact, if you think about it, because Jesus is the Word of God, this is my understanding of it, and I could very well be wrong, but the Old Testament, the recording of the Word of God was Jesus, who is the Word of God, speaking through the prophets, speaking, and that is the recorded Word of God. God spoke through the Word of God, and that is Jesus. Could it be? This is just an assumption. This could, could have been in Christ's life, the three times when God the Father spoke, the first time in human history that the, God the Father was audibly heard. Where, when was it? When did it take place? At His baptism. Heavens opened. The Holy Spirit as a dove descended. You have two witnesses there. God the Father's voice and the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. In a public testimony, two witnesses are necessary. And what did God say? This is my son, my beloved son, who in whom I am well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, only the disciples, just three of them actually, there's a cloud of glory. And from the cloud comes the voice again. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Very, very more direct to the disciples. Listen to what he says. And then in John chapter 12, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And what happened? There was a voice from heaven that says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And it says there in that passage that the people were astonished. Some thought it thundered. Some thought an angel of the Lord had spoken. And what did Jesus say? This wasn't for my benefit. It was for your sake. We face a world that is against God. That says you can't trust the Bible. Friends, God spoke three times. He testified audibly. This is my son. Listen to him. Believe on him. I'm going to glorify him. I'm going to save you through him. We have solid ground to stand on. The cross of reception. We fear God. We know that He is just if He would punish us for our sin. And we conclude that, yes, if we were to die for our sin, it would be a just thing. But Christ dies for us. We vindicate God when we believe in the gospel. We say, yes, Christ didn't die for His sin. He died for ours. He died as a ransom to free me. And we vindicate God. Because God, it says in Isaiah, the Lord was willing to crush Him. It was the Lord's will. That is the extent of how much God loves you. His precious one, the one that was at His side, as we just sang earlier, the one that He sent, He was willing to crush so that He could shower and open the floodgates of His love upon us. What should our response be to that love? Well, we don't want to die in our sin. 
And Christ already died for our sin. Well, let's die to sin. Amen? We're free, saints. We've been set free from sin and its bondage. We no longer have to serve that taskmaster. We have a new master, a good master, a good shepherd, a good Lord who is guiding us towards glory. And He wants us to be free from sin, even now. The three crosses of Calvary. The cross of rejection, the cross of redemption, and the cross of reception. In the end, mankind is distilled into two groups. Yeah, there were lots of people there. There were some people who were kind of, I don't know what's going on. His disciples were confused. But in the end, it was, it's interesting. It's the two men on the cross who are dying who are emblems of what happens to people in the end. You either are a Christ rejecter or a Christ receptor, one who receives Christ. You don't know, I don't know when my day of death is coming. But today, as Paul says, is the day of salvation. Now is the time to receive God's grace in full. And if you, like Woody Allen or others, like Julian the Apostate, continue to harden yourself and resist and push away, like it says of the Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, it says at first he hardened his heart. But later on it says that the Lord hardened his heart. The Lord gives us chances, but He doesn't give us unlimited chances. There's a day coming. If you keep hardening yourself, your heart's going to be too hard. You'll be dead in sin and you'll die in your sin. But if you open your heart today, when you hear the Word and you receive the unplanted Word, which James says is able to save your soul, James 1.21, He will save you. As our brother read this morning, at the right time, when we were hating one another and haters, the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. We were born again by regeneration and washing through the Holy Spirit. Where do you stand today? If you are have come to know Christ, let it be brothers and sisters, for me, for you, for us all, that we do indeed die to sin and live to God. Would one of the brothers close us in prayer?